Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 1st of December 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Uh, well, we'll get uh, straight on with uh, the BBC, and uh, their headline is Om Omicron. Uh, may require very stringent response, says Sage Scientist. So what's this all about? Uh, well, basically, the, uh, uh, they have decided that uh, there was a meeting held uh, on Monday uh, and the BBC has seen the minutes of this meeting. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, they haven't made them available to anybody else. Oh, it's secret then. Uh, so, uh, so they haven't been published by Sage, but the BBC has seen them. Uh, and as a result, uh, we can say that uh, Omicron may require a very stringent response. So we've got to be extremely afraid of it. And I'll just uh, note that SAGE has now become sort of in the normal text, SAGE scientists, wise scientists. So um, the SAGE group, which should be in capitals there, has now come into the text. Yeah, and uh, well, it, it uh, didn't end there because uh, Nerve Tag also were uh, holding a secret meeting last week, although at least they published their, their minutes of it. Uh, so a briefing note for the extraordinary meeting of nerve tag subgroup uh, on SARS-CoV-2 variant B11529. And uh, this was the key part. Conclusion, uh, the subgroup concludes that if introduced into the UK, uh, the, uh, the Omicron variant would likely be capable of initiating a new wave of infections. We cannot exclude that this wave would be of magnitude similar or even larger uh, than previous waves. Uh, and so they some follow-up conclusion there, uh, although data on disease severity associated with Omicron is not yet available, a large wave of infections uh, will be uh, accompanied by a wave of severe cases, uh, and the subgroup cannot rule, be, uh, rule out that this uh, may affect or, or may be sufficient to overwhelm NHS capacity. So, uh, so this is, uh, is very much the message uh, from the mainstream press, at least, or via the, the so-called scientific groups. Uh, that uh, we've got to be extremely afraid. We've got to be very afraid on would likely be capable. So the uh, woolly language is still there. But of course, the way it's framed is to try and ramp up the fear as much as possible. Uh, so the question is, where does that leave us with respect to the legislation? So yesterday, uh, they uh, held a, a vote in the House of Commons on the health protection brackets coronavirus wearing of face coverings brackets England regulations 2021. Uh, and, uh, well, that uh, didn't go so well for the government in the sense that uh, at least uh, 20, 26, 27 uh, uh, Tory MPs voted against uh, what the, uh, uh, the government was aiming to uh, pass through here. It didn't stop the vote going through. 431 votes to 36 in total. 30, sorry, 32 Tory rebels voted against. Um, that's mainly because, of course, the uh, Labour Party is 100% behind the government on this. Uh, no opposition there. Um, so the various ministers have said that the COVID rules to stop the spread of Omicron will be reviewed in three weeks' time, uh, but that the rule on self-isolation uh, after contact with Omicron case is enshrined in law, uh, apparently, until March uh, next year. And Alex, uh, although they're saying that they're going to look at this after, uh, after three weeks, um, this is all on the basis of a of two statutory instruments, the one that we just mentioned, uh, plus the, the one with respect uh, to self-isolation. Um, and uh, well, those, uh, those uh, uh, 
statutory instruments. Um, they have had a little bit of scrutiny in this case, but not very much. For those who don't know how the system works, statutory instruments enable a minister to make ongoing changes to something that Parliament has nodded through. The so-called principle is determined by Parliament, and then the ministry or lobbyists writing text for ministries in the name of a Secretary of State, ultimately in the Queen's name, can just change that ongoingly. We'll see later in the news that Austria is using exactly the same principle for the finer details not to bore MPs with uh, as to who can be forced jabbed or, or be sent uh, to a custodial or non-custodial sentence as a result of not being for, uh, refusing to be jabbed. It's all in the fine print. Remember that last time I came on, we covered how two committees of the House of Lords are warning now that constitutional abuses around statutory instruments have reached such a pitch that we have, quote, a dictatorship. Uh, that's not my language anymore. This is actually coming from members of the House of Lords. So uh, get very concerned about statutory instruments. And if you really want to begin from the beginning, uh, read a book called The New Despotism, written about 100, almost exactly 100 years ago by Lord Hewitt of Berry. Um, uh, indeed. So so uh, the 32 Tory rebels uh, complaining very much about uh, how this was being done, uh, highlighting the fact that, that statutory instruments are uh, you know, effectively undemocratic and dangerous. Um, so uh, let's uh, come on to the Daily Mail now then. And uh, well, on Monday, David Scott was talking about the number of uh, sports people uh, keeling over as a result of, uh, uh, of um, well, of what? It's not really clear as yet. But another one now, uh, Scotland's women's international rugby player, uh, Siobhan uh, Cadigan, uh, who campaigned against sexism in the sport, has died suddenly at the age of 26. Uh, they're saying that it's non-suspicious death, uh, but the, the cause of death at this point has not been announced. Uh, interesting, because the Mail was describing all this as just a coincidence, the fact that we've got all these players collapsing. And we'll tell our audience once again that in UK, the MHRA yellow card vaccine adverse reactions data, there is still not one word of evidence from the MHRA showing that all the... Uh, uh, over 1, 1. 1.2 million adverse effects that they have logged and the 1,700 plus deaths. There's not a shred of evidence showing their investigation into the actual cause of those deaths. So simply we just make, continue to make a claim that the vaccines are safe while we collect data which overwhelmingly appears to show they are not safe for many people. Um, so, Alex, uh, while the Tory party has been busy voting through the statutory instrument uh, which... Uh, uh, requires everybody to mask up and so on. Uh, well, Julia Hartley Brewer here uh, tweeting out, uh, for those querying the accuracy of this photo, I took the photo myself at lunchtime today, uh, and uh, this was a, a, a retweet of a, of a tweet uh, where she basically was showing that the Tories were not masking at all. And I think that's Prince William's bald pate there in the foreground of the photograph. So the great and the good really don't go along with masking. Uh, let's have a look at that slide again, because there's more to come. In the uh, suddenly razzmatazzized, Americanized world of British teaching, we have such a thing as teaching awards that will come up on the right now. And uh, what we can see there, if you would like to tap that, is that... Uh, we have uh, teaching awards, which uh, has got a lot of replies, a lot of flack under this tweet, uh, accusing teachers of, uh, or rather their their um, uh, award ceremony people in this uh, this charity 
um, the, the Teaching Awards Trust, uh, accusing them of scoring a massive open goal for the PR of the teaching profession in Britain, uh, because not, not a soul there is wearing masks. Uh, now, let's find out who was actually comparing or comairing, I suppose we should say, these awards. Uh, a lady who was referred to in the tweet on the right there named Metherine Baig, she calls herself a teacher, a broadcaster, and a an author in that order in her Twitter profile. And I did not go fishing saucily for this photograph. This is actually the full-length version of what she chose to be her own, not Instagram profile picture, but her Twitter profile picture, linked there from her Twitter uh, handle, The Queen Mehreen. Uh, this lady wearing what I understand in the world of ladies' garments is referred to as a boob tube, uh, is the role model. Uh, of role models. She is the lady to interview the finest teachers in the land, inspiring young man, uh, young minds. So no masks, but acres of flesh on display. Um, and it's, uh, it's quite a, <clears throat> an interesting situation, Alex, because, of course, uh, uh, it's the teaching unions in particular that are, that are really ramping up the fear with respect to school children and, and uh, school children being uh, super spreaders. Yes, and we'll see that more jurisdictions later in the news are putting pressure on children. And I'm beginning to see the uh, unfailing logic behind this in most Western countries. Unionized teachers and unionized officials in various countries are never going to be fired anyway. They are unsackable. And uh, it's beginning to become obvious that they regard themselves as the most entitled class. And when they say, for example, save our NHS and keep our schools safe, they mean my own body, my own job. They don't mean the health or well-being in a physical or mental or spiritual sense of anyone else, including the people committed to them as their charges uh, to teach or to heal. Uh, let's go on to a particular example, and you, Mike, you'll be interested that we're making a genuine use of fair use here. We're not like the BBC's Chloe Hajimetheu, who played out a clip of you interviewing Vanessa Beely uh, and then uh, put, uh, put a covering a voiceover on it saying this is a conspiracy site and called that fair use. We're actually going to do it properly. Uh, a YouTube channel named Wall of Sleep uh, has featured uh, a lady from Doncaster in South Yorkshire named Kerry Hurt who's been paralyzed after her first AstraZeneca jab interview. Uh, sorry, and the interview that she's had unprecedentedly has been with the Leeds area local channel, BBC Look North, on the 25th of November. Um, you can cycle through these as I talk, I think, because the text on screen can be uh, freezed and read. But this is the whole backstory of, of Kerry Hurt's severe vaccine damage. And while you're doing that, I'll uh, say thank you very much to the Northern Ireland viewer who called UK Column Studios. Uh, now we have proper assistance, uh, thanks to uh, the uh, subscribers' funds. We have people manning the phones to forward this in kind of information. So we know that there's people in Northern Ireland who wanted this covered and who wanted to draw attention to the facts which is relevant to this BBC piece, that if you are left more than 60% disabled or if a relative of yours is, is killed by a vaccine injury, which now includes COVID jabs in the British government scheme, you're entitled to up to £120,000 of compensation. That in itself is a very large tacit admission of the damages being done by uh, COVID jabs. Uh, so people should just look for on the government uh, website, gov.uk, for the page vaccine damage payments, and they'll find out a lot of information. So this is a case 
case in point, Kerry Hurt has actually been featured and the local BBC team didn't go all the way, uh, of course. They are rather mealy-mouthed, but they're gr grudgingly acknowledging that this is a case of vaccine damage. Of course, they spin it as very rare with a trademark symbol uh, next to rare, probably. And they also talk about uh, how uh, the Hurt family are supposedly still want everyone to get jabbed. I think they're putting words in the Hurt family's mouth. Viewers can make their own mind up because we do fair use properly. Here's the clip in question, and I missed out, I'm afraid, the first couple of words, which should, should be the family of. And let's listen to the rest of the clip. ...of a woman from Rotherham who's paralysed after a rare reaction to the COVID jab says the government should do more to offer financial help. Kerry Hurt developed a blood clot after having a dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine in April. Unable to work and needing constant care, she's calling for a review of the government's system of compensation. It's called the Vaccine Damage Payment Scheme, but it operates under legislation passed more than 40 years ago. People who suffer harm from vaccines can only claim damages of up to £120,000, and the victims must prove they're at least 60% disabled as a result of the vaccination. Ms Hurt's family says this urgently needs changing. The government says reactions like hers are extremely rare and vaccinations have saved lives. Ian White has our top story. This time last year, Kerry Hurt was fit and well. Now she's disabled after two life-saving brain operations and a stroke caused by a very rare reaction to her first COVID jab back in April. It's devastated my life. I can't do anything really. I can't even get myself to the toilet anymore. I can't walk anywhere. And I've had to learn how to talk again. I've had to learn how to eat again. And I'm currently learning how to walk again. Kerry has to rely on husband Pat for everything. It's hard, very hard. Um, people know that. Uh, trying to be a mum, a dad, a carer, uh, everything else. Kerry has been left paralysed and needs to wear a special helmet to protect her head when she's moving around the house. Obviously, we're part of a red still missing on that side, a skull's missing on this side. It's not safe, side. To, walk it's not on safe to walk if on the and... We have to put her hat on and everything, even just go to the toilet. That's good. Not being but... able to work has hit the couple hard. When the Hertz found out they were entitled to compensation, they applied to the government for a vaccine damage payment of £120,000. But six months on, they're still waiting. It's just totally outdated and it's not fit for purpose anymore. It's not been changed since 1979. We did sign a petition to get it updated and changed, which they were going to review. I think they need to definitely review the payment scheme and how people can actually claim it. And obviously people need... It's, obviously, I feel that I'm lucky and that I'm still here. I know that there's people worse than me. And it's like, how do those families cope and how are they coping? It's like, obviously, they need some sort of funds to be able to like, live on a day-to-day -day basis. The BBC asked the government for an interview. Instead, the Department for Health and Social Care gave us a statement in which they said they couldn't comment about individual cases and that serious side effects are extremely rare and all vaccines being used in the UK have undergone robust clinical trials and have met the regulator's strict standards of safety, effectiveness and quality. We're not anti-vaccine by all means. I'll just keep saying I can 30, 30 seconds change somebody's life. So that's all it takes to have a jab. You're in, you sit for 15 minutes that, till it? it's like, well, 15, 15 minutes, 30 seconds, and it just, it's crucified us, hasn't it? It's ruined us. The Hertz believe people should be vaccinated, but must be made aware of the risks involved 
and always be given a choice. I have one more slide for that, and I think we'll have a very brief discussion in a moment. But the slide is for the website in which Kerry Hurt's story is told in depth, and that's where the YouTube channel I mentioned earlier got the story from. It's called No More Silence. Uh, the logo also has the words telling our stories on it. And there is a page for Kerry Hurt's AstraZeneca severe adverse reaction. People can go and find out uh, as much as they like about her case there. But gentlemen, we do fair use properly. Uh, we follow the letter and the spirit of the law. So we had better evaluate, even if it's only in 30 seconds, what the BBC got right and wrong in their approach to journalism there. Well, well there's going to be, a, uh, Alex, there's going to be a long pause because... I would say everything about that uh, Look North clip was wrong because, of course, what they didn't do is give any factual information about what the real vaccine risks are. Uh, they should have come straight on to the MHRA yellow card figures with over 1.2 million adverse reactions recorded and over 1,700 deaths. And they should be asking, where is the analysis of these statistics and of course the BBC has not done that nor have they investigated the failings of the vaccine uh, compensation scheme over the years because if they had people would have told them that it's taken some families 10 years to get any compensation by which time the sum awarded was insufficient to cover the costs of the preceding years of suffering. So I can't give another side to that BBC report because it is so disgracefully biased, sheer propaganda in order to help promote vaccine profits. I mean, how, what else can you say, Mike? Uh, nothing. <laughs> I think that covers it. Yeah. So if the BBC wants to complain, they're very welcome to join us in the studio and we can interview them about their coverage. Um, and that takes us, Alex, on to uh, a walk in the park. So Dublin is divided into numbered postal areas, as British cities used to be. And so people still talk about the west end of the Dublin city centre area or downtown Dublin as Dublin 8. And that is a trial area now. Uh, as far as I'm aware, it's uh, matched only by Malawi in the whole of the world in this regard. At least those are the only two places I've seen such a story from. Uh, I forget which Irish outlet this is from, forgive me, but uh, the headline is It's a Walk in the Park. Dubliners get excited over digital dollars. But unlike Malawi, where people using tracking apps on mobile phones were rewarded with real cash peanuts, a dollar or so in Malawian currency. Here, Dubliners are to be paid in for a walk in the park. Uh, this is the area around um, uh, the um, St. Patrick's Cathedral, Kilmainham uh, Way, Houston Station, sort of West End. So it's quite a working class area. They're to be paid for a walk in the park out there with civic dollars. And they can cash these in for coffee and cake and other goods and services in an, in an effort to encourage outdoor exercise. Well, if that's the stick, Here's the carrot. Um, Dublin, or rather the whole of the Republic of Ireland, has um, an agency now, the HSE, HSE as they would say in, in Ireland, uh, running most of the country now. And we covered the initial uh, stirrings in this regard when their agency, Tusla, started stealing children left, right and centre some years ago. Uh, but here is a poster up, which does appear to me to be genuine. I'll be stand corrected if I'm not. The HSE and the Government of Ireland, with the heart logo at the bottom, seem to be sponsoring this. And it's a COVID alert uh, for, uh, regarding boosters. But look just above the row of jab icons and you can see 
privileges will be granted to fully vaccinated people only. So there we are, Ireland with its pride in having the perhaps the finest uh, constitution in Europe, Bonn Rachner here in 1937, uh, has moved to the idea that your liberty is a privilege. Uh, what do the Syracuse principles uh, agreed in Sicily in the 1970s have to say on that? Uh, I'm very grateful to uh, both the interviewers in question and the lawyer herself, Anna de Buisseret, or Buisseret, who has drawn attention to this. One of the key post-war documents of international law is the ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And the Syracuse principles of learned lawyers got together specifically to work out where you could, as it's called in law, derogate or set aside, uh, derogate from uh, certain constitutional rights and inalienable liberties. Uh, Paragraph D58 is the key one. Not even in times of emergency, war, etc., can there be any derogation from uh, people will know this because this part, the, the first couple of bits has come into EU law as well and is quite well known in Britain as well now. Um, the right to life, no derogation at all, never under any circumstances of pandemic or war. Uh, torture, absolute prohibition, but look what's next. And from medical or scientific experimentation without free consent. I wonder what the Irish uh, government would have to say about that. They're quite sticklers for international law commitments, especially when it gives them a Brexit stick to beat the British government with. So we shall see. Uh, on to perhaps the most totalitarian of all Canada's provinces, Quebec, which has got mixed legal heritage. It's got French civil code as well as some of the Anglo-Saxon common law uh, perspectives. Here we have just a half minute clip, which the government of the province of Quebec and of course, in Canada, the provinces are effectively sovereign in healthcare. Has put out to uh, stimulate the jabbing of five-year-olds and up. pretty dark. For those listening in audio only who only heard the scary music, well, there were scary faces being made by the child actors to match. And the scenarios being played out were things like having a match of hockey with your friends, going to hug granddad and having a birthday party at home. And of course, the subtext is, hey, kids, if you want any of these things, you're going to need your jabs to get those privileges. So it's uh, it's growing, isn't it? It's getting even worse here on the continent of Europe. Uh, on to Greece, where Reuters reports, I think that's the next slide. Uh, no, we no have, I think the uh, next one. The, the next one is uh, Austria. I beg your pardon, I've got them the wrong way around, yes. Austria first. Um, people may be aware of some of the detail of this. Courier.at reports that there could be a, a, an age threshold of 14 years and up for the mandatory vaccination. And it's not on citizens. I've just looked this up. It's not on citizens, it's on residents who are regarded by the Austrian government or the local government there as spending the majority of their life in Austria. So it could be foreigners in Austria, Gastarbeiter and whatnot, Dipl not diplomats, but uh, expatriates as well. Um, the, 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 uh, the details are hazy, but Courier is the first mainstream Austrian outlet to get into the details of what's being discussed behind the scenes in uh, Federal Chancellor Alexander Schallenberg's office. Uh, the key detail is that this uh, coming 
coming week, the week beginning 6th of December, the draft will be uh, put through to Parliament for a bit of show. Of course, it will be mainly ministerial degrees. And there is actually specific mention of that on this, uh, this the shot I've put here, that the, uh, the details uh, as to how often you would have to queue up for another shot for the three years uh, of validity of this law when it becomes law on the 1st of February next year, that would be up to Verordnungen ordinances, so uh, statutory instruments by ministers, again, with no no involvement by parliament. This in the country, which together with the Netherlands, where I'm speaking you, to you from, is the key exponent in the world of the doctrine of monism, which is that international law must absolutely apply, uh, even if the national parliament has not transposed it. Uh, so you'd think that with the, uh, the Austrian chancellor being the former foreign minister, he would be well up on international law and just what he's doing here. Um, sounds extremely criminal to me. Uh, the details that they're hazy on in Vienna but which seem to be uh, determined already, uh, is that the first offence, so-called, of, of disobeying an order from your local council to get the jab will be €3,600 fine or four months non-custodial sentence, known in some jurisdictions as a community service order. Uh, that will double on the second refusal to €7,200 fine or six weeks of non-custodial sentences. And uh, the Chancellor's office is letting it be known through courier journalists that they would rather avoid these non-custodial sentences. But the journalists themselves point out that the Austrian the criminal code insists that if you uh, break uh, such a, a law the second time or even the first time, you must be uh, either fined or, or given a community service order. So we shall see if people refuse that, they may actually end up in jail. And now on to Greece after all. Reuters is reporting, so you have to believe it, it's Reuters, that Greece is reporting vaccinations are to be made mandatory for the over sixes at the other end of the age scale of life. And uh, if you tap that again, the uh, Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis has said that he tortured himself and broke his heart over this decision, but it was the right way to protect the health of the, the old people and his care. Uh, there in Greece, with a much lower annual income and monthly income, it will be a hundred euro fine. Uh, but linked through from that piece to another one is what we've just put on screen. Reuters has already totted up three non-European countries uh, which have gone further than just public workers or healthcare workers to mandate the jab for all adults. They haven't gone as far as Austria with 14-year-olds. That's Indonesia, the Federated States of Micronesia and Turkmenistan, the most out-of-the-way places where the UN and, and international bodies love to try things out before there's any um, uh, any screams elsewhere. The last two in particular are extremely uh, low-news uh, countries for the rest of the world, so you can get, 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 get away with quite a lot. Not so much in Europe, though. So uh, credits to Nederland Stachblatt for actually correcting the journalist we featured a couple of weeks ago, who said that after a bit of Googling, he thought it was all a bit of hype about what was going on in Victoria in Australia, and that he really didn't think there was much uh, to panic about, and that it was all extremism and uh, conspiracy theory to think otherwise. So just one slide to remind people what Hermann Feinhoff, who's actually a journalist specialising in religious affairs, wrote at the time. He said, actually... Victoria has relative uh, freedom of movement by Australian terms. And he says, uh, because I did a bit of Googling on uh, Australia's government website for the fines and couldn't find any detail, it seems that actually in, in practice there may be some given out, but uh, but not much more to it than that. Here commenceth the retraction by the editorial team at Nederlandsdagblad, which calls itself a Christian paper. Uh, I won't read the whole thing, but I'm just giving you a sense of the length of the retraction. Um, so they start off with a bit of rubric saying, we, had, uh, we amended the text of this article on the 12th of November. The tenor of the initial version of this article was uh, too biased, or uh, in Dutch they say one-sided, but in practice it tends to mean uh, biased or, uh, uh, or, or imbalanced. And besides, it contained several factual inaccuracies, uh, which they go on to talk about the... Um, 
uh, QR code, etc. Your now on screen is the second full page of the retraction, uh, including we're sorry we got the name of the state premier of Victoria wrong, um, and uh, the exclusion of uh, MPs from voting if they're not jabbed. They actually say that uh, Feinhoff was rather wrong about that. Third page of retraction comes up now. Uh, and it says there is actually at federal level a fine system, a system of fines in Australia, and uh, the sums of 21,000 Australian dollars for an individual and over 100,000 Australian dollars for a company are the maximum fines in Victoria, uh, but they can only be imposed in exceptional situations by a judge. So they're somewhat defending uh, Fein Hoffman there, signed the chief editors. So uh, it is worth having a go politely and factually at a paper. Uh, because one of the main men targeted in this piece, Lawrence von der Tang, did just that, and he got results. So I think you can in your country as well. Also from here in the Netherlands, the Daily Skeptic uh, is picking up on this from outside the Netherlands. The Dutch government, or a part thereof, did a cost-benefit analysis during lockdown and concluded that the costs of it were disproportionately high. And again, people who can read Dutch, if you tap that again, can look at the... Oh, sorry, this is English bit. Um, but the, the key point here is that the part of the Dutch government involved did its cold calculations in terms of qualies, quality adjust, adjusted life years, Q-A-L-Y, which the British NHS and a number of Western countries are now using uh, to say that a healthy person's uh, year of life is worth more than a sick person's. But even on that rather um, Malthusian basis, uh, the Dutch government concluded that there wasn't actually any purpose into these. And this came out through freedom of information. So use it in your country to get uh, the figures out of your government, even if it's as, as dragging blood out of a stone. Also here in the Netherlands, the Stentor in the east of the country is reporting that in the most conservative council area in the country, the Christian village of Urk, a swimming pool uh, is uh, fighting back against claims on social media that the local population mounted a campaign of refusing to show COVID passes and force the swimming pool to close and thereafter to reopen with no pass requirement. Uh, so the director of the swimming pool, uh, who's called Mr. Schroeder, is, uh, is quoted at length saying, oh no, it's only a small minority of troublemakers. Uh, most of the people, even in this area, are perfectly obedient. And uh, only, um, he does mention uh, grudgingly that 40% uh, of people in Irk have taken the jab. The other 60% uh, have completely let it pass them by. And he's saying that after reopening, there's a council security official on the door um, and that the uh, quote, uh, the, the, the uh, social media claims that the, the swimming pool was defeated by this local campaign are quote, nonsense, because he says, actually, we are taking our adults back in now as they show a QR code and very few people have cancelled. Methinks the swimming pool boss doth protest too much. And it's a sign that if you concentrate uh, enough strength in local areas, you can probably get things done without any nastiness, let alone violence. You simply need to withdraw your custom. And I think Mr. Schroeder is making the point so hard because he probably, with his staff, has suffered more financially than he would care to admit. Finally, in this segment down uh, just across the border from me in Brussels, the mayor has become, become a real Grinch. He has cancelled Christmas. He calls it Brussels Winter Festival. It's not a law or a decree. It's simply an urging, an urgent request. Don't come to Brussels Winter Market or Winter Festival uh, if you're unjabbed. You will be allowed in, it seems, by the, uh, you, you covered on uh, Monday that Brussels or Belgium has a COVID safe ticket. That's the national ver version there of the uh, COVID pass. They might change the name soon for cosmetic re psychological reasons. Uh, but you apparently won't be able to patronize any stalls unless you show any of this COVID safe ticket. But you'll probably be able to wander around the winter market 
and uh, look at the bottom there, uh, Mr. Closer, the uh, mayor of Brussels, uh, there's 19 mayors in Brussels, by the way, but he's the head honcho, uh, says that if traders don't check people's COVID uh, passport wristbands, they risk being excluded from winter fun. At that point, I really could, couldn't suppress a chuckle. It's sounding very much like a headmaster of a primary school. Yes. Just a quick response to um, that one, Alex. The winter uh, festival uh, came into uh, Plymouth in the Devonport area about 15 years ago, and that was because the term Christmas was deemed possibly offensive. So Brussels just catching up, apparently. Um, OK, now, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community where there are options to help us out there. And uh, if you are watching the programme for free, uh, your financial support very much needed and appreciated. Particularly if we are to expand, which is uh, our main objective for 2022. Uh, and also do share material on the various platforms as you find it. OK. Well, um, Monday we were touching on the subject of immigration migration, a very hot topic, of course, for many people. And uh, I was interested in how the BBC um, slipped in a little article. This was a screenshot from the BBC's webpage earlier this morning. And uh, what can we see down at the bottom? Well, we see this rather sinister image. Let's have a look at this on the screen. It says, survivor haunted by deadliest channel crossing. Uh, Mohammed Issa Omar, one of the two survivors, two survivors of last week's disaster, tells the BBC he saw people drown. So um, very interesting image and the uh, headline. I regard this as quite a sinister picture. Uh, for whatever reason, the BBC has taken the picture, so we can't criticise the individual concerned. Uh, but survivor, I'm haunted by the deadliest channel crossing. Uh, the BBC article had a little map so that we can see where this uh, very tragic incident took place. And uh, these are some of the uh, quotes from uh, Mr Omar. He said, we've been travelling for about three and a half hours when the boat started to sink. Our mobiles were already in the water, but one of us had his mobile still working. He called and the British authorities told him to send the direction, uh, the location. But he didn't have a chance. The water got to his mobile too before he could send anything. That's why people started to drown and die. I saw people dying in front of me, but I started to swim. I saw a big ship far away and I started to swim towards it. I saw people dying in front of me. Those of us who could not swim drowned and died within minutes. It was so cold in the water, so cold. Uh, well, the BBC went on to put an anonymous person from the Home Office. They made this statement. The French led a search and rescue operation for an incident that occurred in French territorial waters on Wednesday, the 24th of November where 27 people tragically died. Now, I regard this as offensive that uh, we are to be given an anonymous spokesperson from the Home Office. So let's put a face on this one. So we decided to choose the not-so-pretty Patel. Uh, and the second part of this quote was that as part of this operation, the French requested support from the UK, which was provided by HMG Coast Guard as soon as it was requested. So 27 people died, but we helped the survivors. Um, so I think Pretty Patel is basically saying, so that's all right then. Uh, pretty callous stuff on the subject of migration. 
Um, we just had a few thoughts on how the BBC spun this migrant drowning story. So they played mind games straight away with the image of the ghostly figure haunted by events. Uh, that seems to me pretty crass when we're talking about people drowning. Uh, more mind games in that the tragedy is thrown in onto their news reporting site without any context. But it comes across as if somehow the British public are responsible for these deaths. And we could do more to help these people arrive safely, which, of course, is the idea in the first place is that we should essentially have open borders and three mind games. There's no proper analysis of the migration or the immigration problem and the causes. But plus, we spin the trage tragedy into a French UK issue. And I'm going to give another one for mind games because there's no proper statements by senior govern government officials or any MPs on what's actually happening here. So here we've got the BBC. They're arousing sympathetic emotions for the tragedy because I don't think anybody read the story about 27 people, including mothers and children, drowning in cold water without feeling some emotion and sympathy for them. But then we get the cognitive dissonance brought in because you're contrasting this emotion with what's deep national concerns about the subject of immigration. And then the BBC provides no context to understand the migra migration problem itself. So my take on this is absolutely that the BBC is playing with people's minds. And if we just add a bit more to see what the, uh, why this is all so important, on Monday, we showed the United Nations here with a global uh, migration pact, which is supposed to help prevent suffering and chaos. And we had the quote from the Secretary General. He said that he challenged the myth that developed countries no longer need migrant labour. It's clear that most need migrants across a broad spectrum of vital roles. And we pointed out that this statement was remarkably in line with statements that had previously been made by uh, Sir Peter Sutherland. Uh, he was described as, um, as the mass migration advocate, as well as being the father of, global, uh, of globalization. And of course, he was the representative for the UN on migration, uh, but he was also working for the World Trade Organization and at the time, a banker with Goldman Sachs. He's since deceased. Uh, but this was his key uh, statement. The European Union should be doing its best to undermine the sense of national homogeneity in Britain and Europe in order to pave the way for multicultural states. So this is the deep set globalist agenda to have thousands, millions of people on the move through, through migration. And uh, if we're going to encourage migration to break down the nation state, what comes with it is clearly these people care not about the suffering of the migrants that they're going to force to be on the move. They're, they're just the pawns in the global globalist game. So recognising that Peter Sutherland uh, was himself a Bilderberger, we thought it interesting to have a little look at how much information the BBC has given uh, the UK population on what the Bilderberg uh, group gets up to. And thank you very much to the person who pointed out this little film clip from the BBC back in 2015. Let's just have a little look at this.
so there we have it, um, a film clip that tells us some truthful information that this is a highly secretive organization. We don't know what it's discuss discussing. We do know some of the people who attended, but we don't know what they said, what they agreed to, what effect this will have on policy in the UK. And then the BBC does no further analysis. It just leaves that hanging in the air. So this is, uh, this is uh, more mind games from the BBC. Let's contrast it uh, with people in new media who were trying to actually highlight what's been going on in this organisation. So the BBC on a budget of, what is it, five uh, plus billion pounds has uh, no factual information at all. Let's have a look at what can be done by people who take their cameras onto the, onto the streets. Excuse me guys, I hate to intrude. Um, are you uh, coming from Bilderberg by any chance? We're uh, in that general area. Okay, can you, no, are you able to tell no, us what? No, if you don't mind. Okay, what, what are you guys talking about there? You're not going to start. No? We're out for a walk. Okay. Can you give us a hint as to the agenda this year? publicly out there. We're just out for a walk. Okay, no, that's fine. The agendas are public, but a lot of the times the stuff doesn't get published, what's truly talked about. Yeah. With your mind stuff. With your mind going away. We're just trying to take an afternoon walk. Okay. Well, we're just trying to document what's going on there. I'm not being ridiculous. Well, people are looking at this as a conspiracy theory, and you guys can kind of clear the air right now. Because no a lot conspiracy, of but we're not going to start making statements either. Okay, so it's no conspiracy, but but it's kind of secretive, right? Are you guys enjoying the Bilderberg meeting? How's it going, guys? Enjoying uh, Copenhagen? Can you tell us anything about what's happening inside? Can we show you around, or buy you some drinks, or buy you a meal? So there you have it. It takes uh, people to get out on the streets to interview powerful people like uh, Peter Sutherland, who said the objective was to break down nation states uh, by migration. Um, they were able to do it. And of course, he didn't want to talk at all. But the BBC helping these people with their covert agendas by a wall of silence using five billion pounds worth of the public's money. So who's responsible? ultimately for the death of 27 people, including mothers and children. Well, we could point a finger at this man, but of course we don't know exactly what his agenda is because we can't see what he's doing through the United Nations. But we can point a finger at the United Nations itself because uh, there's enough documentary evidence to show that the objective is for a globalist uh, world government, which does not involve nation states. Uh, we then had Peter Sutherland. Well, as a Goldman Sachs banker and Bilderberger, he was very clear that he wanted the nation state destroyed and he was going to use migration to do it. Uh, but ultimately, uh, if we're going to point a finger of guilt, 
Uh, we've got to point a finger of guilt at the BBC for failing to investigate and tell the truth about who's driving world migration in the first place. So if the BBC management team are watching UK Column News, as we understand they normally do, we'd like to point a finger straight back at the BBC and say your failure to investigate and report ultimately leads to the death of people who are being forced into migration. Um, and Alex, the question is, how are they being forced into migration and uh, uh, something that the mainstream press doesn't want to cover at all uh, <clears throat> is that it's been uh, our policy of regime change, which has driven quite a lot of it. Yes, um, actually bringing about a change in another country's government is not only against the spirit of the whole of international relations since the 1648 piece of Westphalia, but more particularly since 1945 and the codification of most international law is against the letter of a lot of documents. Any honestly minded law student in any serious university in the West or elsewhere in the world will be told this stuff in the first year. It's part of their 101 of becoming a lawyer. Uh, it's just that uh, what you're then sped, uh, spoon fed with for the rest of your career as a lawyer and then a politician or a, a lobbyist is, but it's all right when we do it because we have a responsibility to protect in the world of Twitter hashtags that would be R2P. And that enables uh, people right up to the then uh, US uh, representative at the UN Security Council, Samantha Power, going and throwing a wobbly, literally, at Vitaly Churkin, uh, her then Russian counterpart, since sadly died early, but uh, uh, having a tantrum and saying, how dare you block our intervention in Syria? We have a responsibility to protect, don't you know? Uh, so it's moral smugness that brings us to this point. And the country's targeted usually don't have the legal wherewithal, the 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 clout, the the money, uh, or the uh, independently minded politicians uh, to pursue cases in the UN uh, and in courts uh, against countries that have brought about regime change. But it is a very questionable legality. Yes, indeed. Right. Well, I was just going to add, and of course, wars. Um, uh, created wars are going to help the migration problem no end. Uh, indeed. So let's uh, move on to uh, well, what is. <laughs> Possibly a created war, uh, and uh, we'll we'll have a look at site online here. Uh, this time the bloodshed will be much much bigger. Russia is again gathering troops in the Ukrainian border area, uh, and uh, this is an interview with uh, Ukraine's foreign minister on the threat of invasion uh, and relations with the EU. So let's just uh, run through some of the comments that he makes. Uh, he says whether the Russian threat will be turned into real military action depends on two factors. Uh, the re resilience of Ukraine and the support uh, extended to Ukraine by its partners. Uh, and he goes on to talk about the support, which is uh, not just uh, uh, verbal support. There is physical support coming from uh, Western countries uh, for Ukraine, from the EU, from the UK, from the United States at the moment as well. Uh, it's military aggression combined with disinformation and attempts to trigger uh, domestic instability is what he is uh, accusing the Russians of. Uh, we call it a deterrence package. Uh, so this is what the West is providing. And this deterrence package consists of three elements, uh, and, uh, but uh, mainly, uh, uh, obviously, political support, but also uh, uh, real physical military support as well. I, categoric I categorically reject the idea that arming Ukraine is akin to igniting uh, the conflict. Uh, Russia wants Ukraine to remain weak 
Therefore, those who reject cooperation with us in military and defense are strengthening Russia's position. So what is Russia's position? Well, Russia has no plans to investigate, uh, sorry, to invade anyone, uh, says Dmitry Peskov, who's the Kremlin spokesman. Uh, allegations that it's behaving aggressively uh, are absolutely groundless uh, and wrong. So, um, Alex, uh, the question is then, um, what is Russia up to? Uh, Russia apparently is not allowed to move its military uh, within its own borders uh, if those borders happen to be uh, on its western fly uh, flank. Um, so, uh, what's your what are your thoughts on uh, on Russia's position and how this is building up at the moment? Well, they have a longer institutional continuity and memory. Uh, Ukraine, with no uh, offence meant to the Ukrainian people, who I, I know pretty well by this point, I have to say, both the pro-Russian and nationalist sides, uh, are a young country, a young state, because of their victimisation through history, of course. Uh, and Pieskov is a good embodiment of the continuity because he's been in Putin's core team for a long time. His memory stretches back through what happens to Russia in both world wars, which, uh, whether you call it Russia or the Soviet Union, depending on historical uh, requirements, is unprecedented in the West. The amount of suffering, the proportion of the population left uh, left dead and, and uh, wounded by the wars. And as a result of that, Russia, which has a flank, an open flank on its western side, plains, uh, hard to defend, has decided, uh, as has Iran these days as well, not to fight a war on its own territory, but to have a buffer zone by good relations with neighbouring states, as a result of which it can do its large-scale exercises in the allied state of Belarus, with whom it might form a union state soon. Uh, Ukraine, of course, and I've, I've said this at least privately, if not on UK column, but I'll say it now for about a year, the long-term likelihood is, I'll be quite frank, for those who think I'm often too pro-Russian, the long-term likelihood is that Russia will incorporate or otherwise politically neutralise the threat from Ukraine, cutting off perhaps the Western Quarter, historically known as Galicia, and throwing that as a, a sop to Europe, where it really more, more properly belongs historically and culturally, and is even Catholic rather than Eastern Orthodox. That's likely to happen. Whether they're going to invade tomorrow, and for the last month, the threat's always been the Russians are coming over the border tomorrow, that is not something preoccupying anyone in any zone of Ukraine, other than these I would hesitate to use the word, but I will. These puppets that you've put up, the current uh, ministers. Behind it all, if you read intelligently what the best Russian media and indeed Ukrainian media say, behind it all, and this is true of all of the post-Soviet conflicts to which I had a ringside seat as a British intelligence officer in the 2000s, is the clash of the oligarchs. Most of the oligarchs, whether they made it big in Russia or Ukraine, are, have at least some Ukrainian origin. And uh, it's uh, it's clear now that most of the coups which have happened with astonishing regularity in Ukraine every two or three years for the last 20 years, uh, these have had behind them clashes of oligarchs. The man currently in the frame is the oligarch Rinat Akhmetov, who according to some sources, is getting uh, Russia uh, on side for the latest uh, show revolution. I'm afraid there's not much more to it than that, than a clash of oligarchs within Ukraine. Uh, that's that's what's behind Ukraine's perennial chaos. And uh, one of the sides usually will ally with Russia for a, a truce of convenience, and the other will decide to be pro-EU and NATO for the time being. Then it will be musical chairs and they'll all shuffle round. Okay, so, well, okay, we'll take that, that on board, Alex, but at the same time, <clears throat> we've got uh, so much uh, rhetoric coming out of uh, the UK government uh, in particular at the moment with respect to, to Ukraine, uh, that there's a bit more to it than that. So let's uh, bring Liz Truss uh, on screen, the wonderful Liz Truss, uh, and uh, 
uh, here she is uh, descending the steps of the BA plane uh, as, uh, 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 as she arrived. Black goddess. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, it got even better uh, because uh, here she is uh, doing a Margaret Thatcher uh, on the tank uh, yesterday because uh, what else would she be doing? Uh, she's arrived, she is arriving for the NATO foreign ministers meeting. Uh, and, uh, but just before we get onto that particular topic, uh, she uh, uh, wanted to write an article um, for the Mail. Uh, so this is her article on the Mail yesterday. Russia will pay the price if it invades Ukraine. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss underlines her determination to stand up to Vladimir Putin. Uh, we are defending and promoting uh, the frontiers of freedom around the world. That is why I'm proud of our soldiers uh, who are doing great work in places like Estonia, where I joined them yesterday flying the flag for liberty and democracy. These troops are out there supporting NATO's collective defence. Estonia, like its Baltic neighbours, Lithuania and Latvia, is showing the freedom that freedom can deliver 30 years uh, after the collapse of communism uh, since being freed by, from Soviet rule. Uh, they have empowered individuals to succeed like never before. Uh, so tomorrow, that being today, uh, she's meeting our NATO allies in Riga. Let's just have a quick look at an image. Uh, from that particular meeting, there you go. Um, I'm sure you can work out which one. She's got cowboy boots on. Yeah, <laughs> She's yes. got jack boots. She's on. got jack boots on. <laughs> uh, it's time for our freedom-loving democracies to work together to realise this vision uh, with a strong NATO, a core part. Uh, the UK is positioning itself at the heart of global network of diplomatic and security partnerships, which extends beyond NATO to relationships like our Vital Five Eyes Intelligence. Uh, alliance, which we're uh, and we're going further and faster with partners, such as through the newly agreed AUKUS partnership. But then she comes on to the core of what she really wants to say here, which is that Russia uh, is waging a campaign of economic coercion against European friends to undermine them by exploiting their reliance on its gas. Uh, we also cannot let Russia wash its hands of the shameful migrant crisis whipped up uh, by Belarus, uh, as it has a, a clear responsibility to play its part in ending the stalemate. Uh, now more than ever, we must be robust in championing our interests. Uh, there can be no greater interest in the future of freedom and democracy around the world. By forging closer ties, uh, we can stand strong together uh, in securing a freer, safer, and more prosperous world. So there she uh, is in Riga. But Alex, uh, the, the, the rhetoric is uh, that Russia is the enemy. Uh, Russia is likely to uh, attack Ukraine, uh, and we can't have that because Ukraine, while not quite a member of NATO yet, uh, certainly is is viewed as as, being, ours. as ours. Yes, that that is the key, Mike. And we've covered recently the the Russians now saying this in terms, and the smarter Washington uh, defense analysts and strategic writers as well. There is a recognition in the West, though not in the hard nut eastern end. Uh, of the West, so not, not in the Baltic states and Ukraine and Georgia, but there's a recognition further West than that, including crucially in Germany, which said nine to uh, Ukraine joining NATO at just the right time in 2008 to prevent a war. There is a recognition that Russia's red line is now, if Ukraine and Georgia are de facto members of NATO, even if not covered by the Article 5 Mutual Defence Clause security blanket or umbrella, uh, that is enough to uh, provoke Russia to do what only the West's allowed to do. Uh, apparently, which is to bring about a regime change. It will only be what the fifth or sixth 
since Leonid Kuzma in 2000. So um, nothing remarkably new there for Ukraine. I'm not knocking these countries. They're doing sterling work and are bastions of liberty at a, a local level in many ways. But that whole belt of countries, and particularly the political class in those countries, has grown up in diaspora in Canada or in Britain, uh, and then come back to the, 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 their own native lands to, to assume the reins of government with no other thoughts in their head than Russia is the eternal enemy. Uh, these are often the descendants of SS collaborating families, by the way, although I do understand historically why their sons joined it in those days. And they often have a legend uh, in the mix there that Britain and America will ride to their rescue. So this, this is not a political class in Ukraine and neighbouring countries that you can really do business with without bloodying Russia's nose. Um, OK, let's move on to China then, Alex. And uh, well, this is the lodestar. Uh, new law in China coincides with massive cut in vessel location data. The lodestar has as its byline on the website making sense of the supply chain. Uh, this is a big issue for people who have come to it as a bit, low, a bit late to the party, perhaps, but who've realised through the coverage of the likes of Ice Age Pharma, and that's F-A-R-M-E-R, -E of course, and ADAPT 2030, have realised that the supply chain is deliberately being targeted and that uh, climate change in the real world, like getting colder, is uh, being covered up by uh, uh, talk of supply chains being disrupted just in time to fudge the issue. Anyway, uh, what's going on here is that a lot of Chinese shipping on which the world so crucially depends has gone dark to the casual foreign observer because AIS, the civilian tracking system, which of course became such a political hot potato in the Black Sea, recently with the Russian and Western navies standing off. That uh, has also now been uh, switched off for visibility of foreigners uh, when looking at Chinese shipping. So the Lodestar reports that China's new personal information protection law, so their equivalent of GDPR, has reportedly prompted Chinese domestic providers to stop sharing AIS, so ship, civilian ship tracking data, with foreign companies. Uh, it says there's been no official statement from China, but the drop-off appears to coincide with the new law, which critics claim has made it harder for foreign businesses to do business in China. If China was preparing to be invaded, this is the kind of thing that they would do a couple of months before things went really nasty, isn't it? Uh, it's got overtones of what we did off uh, the German bite in 1914. Um, Deadline, which uh, covers, among other things, film criticism, reports that in the Chinese market, the world's largest for film, uh, a film glorifying the 1951 uh, episode in the Korean War when the Chinese intervened has become the largest grossing film of all time in the Chinese uh, market, the battle at Lake Changjin, which according to a review linked from that piece is a staggeringly, staggeringly enormous, lavishly staged, indulgent film, which relishes its opportunities to achieve maximum speed and impact and fully trumpets a nationalistic and societally optimistic outlook. This it was included in the daily roundup by Military Times um, uh, in the uh, US, which is emailed to a, a policy making audience. So evidently we're being uh, prepared and to, to be told that the Chinese are, are entering a gung-ho phase. Uh, task and Purpose, which is uh, often worth reading on defence strategic issues, reports, and here's a new term to me, uh, that the US has done some war games in the Sea of Japan with a lot of Marine Corps and Navy elements, uh, including mostly aerial elements. Uh, but what's important here is that, if you tap that again, the Lieutenant Colonel quoted, Lieutenant Colonel, the Americans, Jeremy Siegel, is no longer calling China a near-peer adversary, standard language for Russia and China since about 2016. No, China is now called a peer adversary against whom they're training. So uh, the senior officer on the ground just off China 
is now saying in the uh, very important code words that uh, that do the rounds in, in these papers, that uh, China is not nearly as strong as the US. No, China is as strong as the US in that theater. Uh, okay, so which brings us then on to uh, uh, the uh, head of MI6, who uh, was giving, well, an unprecedented, I don't think it's unfair to say it was an unprecedented speech uh, yesterday. Uh, let's have a look at uh, some of the things that he was saying. Uh, so Richard Moore here saying, uh, we've come a long way since the 1980s when I first joined MI6, uh, and uh, the, when the identity of C was still secret. Um, he uh, went on to say, but it is unusual, still unusual for the whole of, of this office to give public speeches. This is something that I want to change judiciously for two reasons. Uh, first, it's an important part of the way we hold ourselves to account. And second, the changing nature of the threats that we face requires a degree of openness from a modern intelligence agency. Um, so, uh, well, what was the nature of the openness that he's talking about? Well, we'll come on to that in one second. Uh, there are elements of continuity Russia and China, Russia, China, and Iran, for instance, uh, have long been part three of what I might informally call the big four uh, priorities within the intelligence community, the fourth being the threat for inter from international terrorism. Uh, we face adversaries who are feeling emboldened, uh, encounter fewer constraints, and are able to draw on greater resources than in the past. Uh, and he said, uh, advances in quantum engineering and engineered biology will change entire industries. Uh, and uh, this is a risk as far as they're concerned. According to some assessments, we may experience more technological progress in the next 10 years than in the last century with a disruptive impact equal to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and he went on to say this is not just about being able to understand China and Chinese decision making. We need to be able to operate undetected as an intelligence agency everywhere within the worldwide surveillance web. So he was expressing a deep concern that technological advancements, particularly driven by China, and particularly in areas like facial recognition, for example, uh, were putting MI6 operatives at risk in China and in any countries that uh, China was selling the technology to. Uh, and uh, he went on to say um, this, uh, turning to the second of the big four, we continue to face an acute threat from Russia. So the rhetoric from uh, the intelligence services here, Alex, is absolutely the same, uh, that it's China, Russia, and so on. Uh, and he went on to say, uh, these include state-sanctioned attacks, such as we've seen in Salisbury and the Czech Republic, interference in democratic processes, such as the attempted coup in Montenegro, uh, cyber attacks, such as solar winds, cyber intrusion, which we and our partners publicly attributed to the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, uh, or the use of political proxies to undermine uh, stability in the Western Balkans. Uh, this activity is on an upward trend. Um, so this is uh, um, uh, absolutely clear that they, they put, continue to push this, uh, this narrative that Russia and China are the main threats. Uh, as the foreign and defense secretaries have made clear in their visits to Ukraine, Moscow should be in no doubt of our support for the sovereignty and territorial uh, integrity of Ukraine. Uh, and uh, what is new, he went on to say, is that we are now pursuing partnerships with tech community to help develop world-class technologies to solve our biggest mission problems. Uh, and uh, uh, through the National Security Strategic Investment Fund, we're opening up our mission 
problems uh, to those with talent in organizations that wouldn't normally work with national security. Unlike Q in the Bond movies, we can no longer or we cannot do it all in-house. So Alex, with quite a range of topics uh, covered in that presentation, and we haven't uh, covered it all by any means, um, but he uh, very much uh, co continuing to push this uh, anti-China, anti-Russia narrative, uh, continuing to say that as technology develops, uh, there are not only threats to our uh, agents and operatives abroad, uh, but there are threats domestically through uh, cyber attacks uh, blamed on uh, the Russians or the Chinese or whoever it happens to be. Um, and that basically uh, MI6, the intelligence agencies, uh, can no longer do things on their own. They require, therefore, um, support from uh, third, from private companies, effectively. They, they need the, the big tech companies to come on board and work with them. My question then is, uh, where does that leave us? Uh, we'll be lumped in as the enemy. Uh, and this was being suggested by Gordon Welchman back in the late 1970s in his book, The Hut Six Story, in the then later uh, ex uh, extracted final chapter in which he says that as of about 1980, uh, Western financial institutions and data crunchers uh, regard the domestic front as most important. And that was at the height of the Cold War when detente had uh, collapsed again. Um, Richard Moore is not one of the worst incumbents as C that I've seen in recent years. Uh, he has a sneaking sympathy for the Russians. He was posted mainly to Islamic countries as on his way up the ranks. Um, not since Sir Richard Dearlove has there been perhaps a man with so much gravitas. Uh, but he is painfully admitting in this speech that he's thin on the ground for officers with China expertise. He had a whole section of his speech about how not just MI6, but the entire intelligence community in Britain was well, he didn't use these words, but basically having to brush up, brush up its Mandarin. Uh, in my day, they were so desperate for Mandarin speakers, particularly GCHQ, um, that uh, they, they somewhat relaxed the uh, security requirements in a sense. Uh, one of my colleagues there with, uh, with Chinese, as would be well known to people, was Catherine Gun, who became the Iraq War whistleblower and now is doing sterling work in the fight against COVID tyranny in close allegiance with doctors for COVID ethics. So there's always been very few Western intelligence officers who speak Mandarin or even Russian some good ones at MI6 who have Russian. In the past, that wasn't a problem because you could do your loose thing buttering up oppositionists and to some extent even operate in Moscow and Peking if you obeyed the, the gentleman's rules, as it were. No longer the case. The real intelligence is hidden behind impenetrable uh, human and, and technical security. And you're really only going to bring about change in Russia and China now that they're, uh, to quote that Lieutenant Colonel, they are peers rather than near peers. You're only going to choke them off financially. So that means co-opting the whole of the Western apparatus. By the way, everything that Richard Moore said there about the aggressive actions of Russian and Chinese intelligence services is explicitly true of Israel. And briefings given to intelligence officers in Britain and America for decades past now have all said, watch out for the Israelis, they're aggressive in all these areas, up to and including regime change, which we're accusing the Russians and Chinese of sponsoring. Right. So um, you'll never hear a, a director of a Western intelligence agency say that about Israel, but it's equally true about them. Okay, and just to just to sort of reiterate this point, uh, what what is your your take on this call for directly working with uh, with private companies? Because this seems to be something which up until now is is unprecedented. Uh, certainly, it is. It's 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 formalising the, the 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 de facto reality for some time that MI six and GCHQ and MI five will lean on big British companies and banks and international organisations headquartered in London or or Washington. That's uh, 
that that has been an open secret. It's now being avowed, shall we say. Uh, the legal change, of course, is that if MI6 or the other intelligence agencies do things routinely through the agency uh, of a private body, that private body or even an in-house contractor cannot be expected to maintain as scrupulously as sworn intelligence officers would the division between a foreigner who's a target by default and a domestic person who is by default protected unless you can stringently prove that they're worth signing a warrant on by the Secretary of State. Private companies will, at least at the technical level, simply go about that by putting a thin mask on those persons' data, which can be, uh, even for the sake of curiosity, let alone nefarious intent, can be easily removed. So you will find, if that's too complicated an explanation, I'll just simplify it to, you will find geeks at these financial and technical bodies working for MI6 increasingly, who even if out out of idle curiosity, go and have a peek at what the British people are doing. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, well, we're going to come back onto the subject of uh, migration and immigration if the wars are going to be kick-started by uh, this type of manoeuvring behind the scenes. Uh, we're going to expect children to come into the frame, but even I was surprised to visit the Home Office uh, website and uh, find it's more like a sort of news outlet now because we've got government featured articles. So you're not looking at uh, the media per se, you're looking at gov.uk. What were they featuring? Well, it was this, a national transfer scheme, uh, which is gonna become mandatory for all local authorities. Children's services across the UK have been informed of our intention to temporarily mandate the scheme. Uh, Well, what's all this about? Uh, Well, it's this. Uh, Tuesday, the 23rd of November, the Minister for Safe and Legal Migration. Well, quite clearly, it's not safe, so we should be questioning Kevin Foster. But he's written to all local authorities with children's services across the UK to inform them of the government's intention to temporarily mandate the national transfer scheme. And under this change, all local authorities have been given legal notice to accept transfers of children into their care, providing crucial placements to, quote, unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. Uh, There's uh, lots more to this and encourage people to go and have a look at it. The scheme is apparently vital to ensure unaccompanied asylum-seeking children receive the critical care they need and end the use of hotels for them following the unprecedented recent pressure placed on the asylum system. So we've got two things. We've got an admission of what's happening, people arriving in in this country, Uh, but we've also got, once again, this unhealthy situation of children coming in on their own. We had the Syrian children, Mike, a year or two years ago, coming into UK and then disappearing. The government admitted it had lost some unaccompanied uh, Syrian children. But here we can see that they're expecting such numbers that apparently any local authority that has less than 0.07% of its uh, total population, um, if it has less than that as immigrants, they're going to have to take these children. Uh, This is what the man said. It's right we do all we can to protect unaccompanied asylum-seeking children many of whom have gone through dangerous journeys and been exploited by despicable people smugglers. Well, in my view, that would include the UN and the people who are 
pushing the policy to get all these people on the move in the first place. So an interesting description, despicable people smugglers. I'm grateful for the continued invaluable support of local authorities across the country who provided crucial placements to vulnerable young asylum seekers. And of course, the abuse of these children is going to carry on alongside the abuse of uh, children from indigenous population who are suffering at the hands of the so-called care system. He said, this decision has not been taken lightly, but it is in the best interests of these children to make sure they receive the support they need. Um, very quickly, Alex, um, I'm using the word disgusted quite a lot these days, but the ignorance and hypocrisy of these people, how could you even accept the title of Minister for Safe and Legal Migration when we know the whole thing is an engineered scam in the first place? I first became aware of this new title from uh, UK Column News itself uh, a couple of episodes ago, and it immediately put me in mind of the abortion campaigners of the 60s and 70s who, in the English-speaking world, used the, the slogan, abortion should be safe, legal and rare. Once it had been pushed through all the English-speaking jurisdictions, ending in Ireland not very long ago, we found that the, the whole point of the safe and legal uh, buzzwords to push to ram it through was to cover up the fact that it was always designed to become a mass phenomenon, not a rare one. So we now have a safe and legal migration minister, ministerial post. They're not even pretending this time that it's going to be rare. It's going to be a mass phenomenon. Yeah. Well, we've just done a little bit of a UK column wiring diagram to have a look at how the corporatist global uh, governance system works. Uh, very simplistic, but it gives us an idea. Let's start off with us, the public at the uh, bottom. And of course, where do we go for, for our democracy? Well, we're supposedly going to go to the local councils. But unfortunately, there's a bit of a space between people and their representatives, because we know from all of the reports across the, council, uh, the country that many people are saying that even their local councillors now will not pay attention to any concerns they have, whether it's to do with children or it's to do with COVID or masks. Uh, it appears that local councillors are stepping away from actually engaging with their public. We've got Parliament. We should remember that it's empty, uh, certainly empty theatre. And the political parties of any colour, um, they have claimed the loyalty and obedience of the MPs. So the MPs are not going to work for us, the people. They're only going to work for the political parties. And it doesn't matter the colour of the party. They are, in fact, all working to one agenda. Um, as you mentioned earlier in the news with Labour, Mike, that it's clear that Labour is just an extension of uh, the Tories. So we've got a big space between people and their parliamentary representatives because MPs do not want to talk to their con uh, constituents in any way. Uh, we've got the political parties have claimed the loyalty of the local councils. So local councillors invariably more interested in what their party tells them and what in their local constituents tells them. Uh, we've got the MPs controlled by the whips, and we know that certainly in the past that was done through blackmail, through little boys, for instance, as uh, Tim Fortescue, former whip, mentioned to the BBC. Uh, we've got the parties themselves, of course, absolutely controlled by the funders. And then to the wings, we've got the powerful and unaccountable bodies that are driving in the policy. So I've put in the World Economic Forum here, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderbergers we've already mentioned, the UN, 
but also uh, we've got to include the multi-billion funds coming through the think tanks and the corporates, uh, of which uh, Bill and Melinda Gates feature extremely strongly, uh, but George Soros would be another one. And I've put in common purpose there because, of course, it was the pernicious political charity common purpose that said its intention was to fill the space between the public and their representatives at local and parliamentary level in order to take over the agenda. And we'll just uh, add that, of course, none of this scam system could work without the BBC and the media spinning lies about what's actually happening or uh, misleading us by a wall of silence. Okay, where does that uh, bring us? Right, uh, Alex, just very briefly before we go to uh, COP26, uh, the, uh, uh, unfortunately, another energy company has collapsed in the UK. Uh, so this is Zog Energy. Uh, so the Zog Energy Limited is, uh, is um, ceasing to trade. Offgem, the energy regulator, is appointing a new supplier to, for its customers. Um, so this is another energy supplier who's given up, uh, basically, under the, uh, uh, the current uh, system. Uh, they only had, well, I say only, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's 11,700 households on its books. Uh, and of course, those people now uh, likely to be experiencing much higher uh, energy costs as they uh, move to uh, new suppliers. Um, so 25 uh, companies have failed since the start of September um, because they've been able, unable to pass on uh, wholesale prices. Uh, and... Uh, uh, the most recent one, of course, uh, but prior to this was Bulb. Uh, that's going to cost something like £1.7 billion uh, to the uh, UK taxpayer um, as, uh, as the government's bailout of that particular organisation uh, takes hold. Um, and Alex, uh, this largely uh, related to COP26 because uh, it's all happening as a result of um, the uh, uh, various... Um, economic implications of uh, the Green New Deal and so on. Um, so let's uh, come on to this, uh, which is panel discussion, uh, behavioral climate policy on the, Google, on the global community. Uh, denatured by being discolored British flag. HM government, Her Majesty's government is now UK government, so it's now for a corporation called UK rather than for Her Majesty representing the people. And uh, of course, like the whole of COP26 held in Glasgow, it was a British government hosted event for the United Nations climate change brand. I think brand is the right word. So uh, we won't read this, but uh, the, the lower half of the screen gives the blurb for this uh, panel discussion held in, or, or rather given to Glasgow remotely by a bunch of Nordics in this session, just to illustrate to people how Britain's lead in behavioural change and nudging has spread. This was an all Nordic panel, mostly Swedes and Finns. Uh, the speaker you're about to hear in two clips is a, a Swedish professor, Til Grune Janov. Currently, if you go to ukcolumn.org and go to the bottom of the homepage, you will find a link to this whole speech queued up to the timestamp where he starts talking interesting stuff. So I'll wait a couple of days before refreshing the stories we're watching rubric of the homepage. But listen to Til Grune Janov here. Uh, talking and note that he's not claiming to be a psychologist or a mind expert. He's a philosopher, right? So he's been told this is the possible. Now go ye and moralize upon it. So he's not an expert about the mind. He's an expert in getting results delivered in an approving and acceptably ethical way as measured by the, the public and their policymakers. So here he is talking in the first clip about the British pioneered idea and American through Cass Sunstein, the Anglo-Saxon pioneered idea of nudge. 
And in the second clip, we'll see how he then presents a, a refined version of Nudge, which is, by his own admission, less impalatable and less shocking. But first, he talks about classic Nudge as developed by the Cameron and Obama administrations. In many cases, it will be either not feasible or not acceptable to coerce people into changing their behavior or to generate this behavioral change through massive fines or subsidies. Some people have therefore suggested that we should instigate behavioral change by employing behavioral science expertise. Let me give you some examples how this might work. A policymaker might want to help people reduce their electricity consumption without forcing them to do something that they don't want to do. They might, for example, resort to social comparisons. That is, you're presenting each individual consumer with uh, not only their own annual or monthly consumption, but also give them a comparison to their peer group, let's say all their neighbors, or perhaps only a selection of their neighbors, perhaps the most effective ones, like a model group or something of that sort. And you might further uh, emphasize that by providing people with, um, let's say, something like an emotive message, like a smiley or a thumbs up, something of that sort. Another one is uh, by identifying specific contexts where an individual has a choice that has an effect on uh, electricity consumption in this case. So, for example, most people in their kitchens have multiple cooking appliances, a stovetop, an oven, a microwave. Many people don't know that using a microwave for, for preparing food is a lot more energy efficient than using, for example, uh, the oven. And here we can maybe provide uh, actionable strategies, little tricks, little helps, little, little suggestions, how to implement such um, uh, a more energy efficient behavior. For example, by providing them with recipes for microwave cooked dishes that before they only knew how to cook in the oven or on the stovetop. The social comparison nudge operates by harnessing a common cognitive bias. Most people, myself included, are subject to peer influence. When I don't know what to do, I often look to what my peers do. And when I'm uncertain, then information about what my peers do might influence my behavior. So there we are in the almost preaching rhetoric of his triad. He says that classic Anglo-American nudges, little tricks, little helps, little suggestions. But spliced in with the footage you could see is the ASH experiments, A-S-C-H of the 1960s. Uh, go and find out what they found there. Essentially that a small minority of the public will say this line is longer than this line and will not go with the group. But most will do what they are told the herd is doing. The second shorter clip is Till Grunyanov's, uh, shall we say, new improved nudge. The Continentals have taken and run with uh, Anglo-American nudge and have turned it into a fine, sassy Nordic model suitable for application in all those groovy uh, jurisdictions that, uh, that like getting with the agenda. So here he's talking about the uh, uh, revised version of nudge, uh, which is um, called boost. And let's hear what boosting is all about. This is the, the more acceptable form, remember. A boost, in contrast, operates through increasing competences. So uh, we are telling people 
um, how um, they might use simple, a simple heuristic, a simple strategy for behavior that is adapted to their specific uh, context and might solve a particular problem. Now, you might ask, what is that distinction good for? Why make it? And I give you three arguments for why this is important. The first one is that boosts tend to ethically be ethically less problematic than nudges. Nudges aren't always ethically problematic. Many nudges are entirely unproblematic from an ethical perspective. But when nudging, the nudger accepts that at least to some of the people nudged, it is not transparent. They are not aware that their behavior is influenced this way. And this might lead to um, less autonomous actions. Some critics even have argued that this amounts to manipulation. Now contrast that with boosts. You cannot make someone more competent, provide them with the competence without them being on some level aware. So boosts therefore must co-opt the motivation of the individual for being effective. Secondly, boosts are increasingly inexpensive and scalable. As you see in our example, we are simply using uh, very uh, cheap technology um, that, the, in, that the individuals can interact with. There's no reason for us to engage in any massive educational program here. Last, and perhaps most importantly, this distinction is important because it helps us to develop a menu from which the policymaker can choose in their aim of finding the most effective and persistent intervention for a given problem. It also... There we go. And I think in the interest of time, we will scoot through the last couple of European continental stories to show... You were speaking, Mike? Yeah, we're, we're, we probably have to end it there, I'm afraid, Alex. But I was just going to say, uh, is he really arguing that, that, uh, that the boost is more ethically justifiable when both boosts and nudges are about changing people's behavior basically in the model that that I would prefer rather than the model that perhaps the person uh, on the receiving end would prefer. Yeah, it's not very persuasive, is it? I think the giveaway was the shortest of his three arguments, the middle one, which is that you don't need to invest in training people. All you need to do is to produce a bit of a laminated card or digital equivalent for a policymaker saying, here's the least uh, intervention and here's the most uh, aggravated intervention. Uh, choose ye the one that you think you can get away with uh, and save budget. Yeah. Uh, but of course, Alex, it all depends on the fact that the policymaker who's going to choose is law-abiding and has some morality if they are criminals, liars and cheats, as seems to be increasingly the way in Western societies. We're giving these people some very powerful tools in which to uh, change the way we think and behave. Mm. We'll save further analysis on that for extra. <laughs> extra time. Thank you very much to everybody who's joined us today, whether you're in UK or overseas. Um, just to add again that if you like what we're doing, you want to see UK column uh, expand and you're not a subscriber at the moment, please consider subscribing. We need all the help we can get in order to improve and increase the uh, news output. Thanks very much for joining us. Bye-bye.